tuned in to Full Service Radio. Full Service Radio. Full Service. Full Service. Full Service. Full Service Radio. Full Service Radio is proudly supported and hosted by Simplecast, the easiest way for a podcast creator to publish and distribute audio on the internet. For more information, visit simplecast.com. Hi everyone, you're listening to District Darkas. Durka Durka, Muhammad Jihad. Hi everyone, if you've noticed, we've changed our opening song. Thanks, Olya, for that tune. Uh, so, a Durka from Yemen, that's me, Sama, and a Durka from Algeria, Lilia. Aloha. We live in the District of Columbia and we get together every week at 2 p.m. live to decipher the Middle Eastern experience in the capital of the United States. Topics include feminism, sexism. Terrorism, absolutism, atheism, monotheism, socialism, etc., and all the prisms and schisms in between. If you're tuning in, this is Full Service Radio, and we are District Darkas. We are broadcasting live, and this week we are going to talk about kind of identity. Is that a category? Kind of? Kind of? Pseudo-identity? Yeah, sure. So many types of identities, yes. So I actually took off for a while, which is why we're behind on some episodes, I got an opportunity to go to Istanbul, the capital of Turkey, and Beirut, the capital of Lebanon, which was a, a real treat for me because, one, the weather there was a lot nicer than here, and two, it's kind of uh, an opportunity to go to the region and see how, how things really are ticking over there. So, so tell us more about this. Tell us what struck you when you went there. I mean, I've been to Istanbul, but I've never been to Lebanon, so... So I've been to Lebanon, but I've never been to Istanbul before. <laughs> so that's like the fun part. They're kind of similar. I feel like Beirut would have been a lot like Istanbul had their economy not crashed and had they not been surrounded by so many conflict, uh, air, like conflict zones. You know, everywhere you look in Lebanon, it's, it's not looking good there. And their economy is, is crashing hard because it's based on tourism and a lot of people are scared to go there. But Istanbul was booming. Um, With cats. Wow, yeah. That was, that was really, that was a treat for me when I'm allergic to cats, but there were so many cats everywhere. Yeah, that's when you know you're doing something well as a civilization is when you take care of your cats. And dogs. Yes. The stray dogs were tagged and were super friendly and well cared for. They weren't, like people weren't jumping around being like, oh my God, stray animal, you know, get that's, me away from there. That's beautiful. That wouldn't be the case in Algeria. We're not there yet. You still like, a sub, a sub, like, yeah, get like, away. Well, in, in Yemen, unfortunately, they mistreat stray animals. Uh, a lot of animals, especially dogs, their ears are cut off on the street Whoa. to kind of make them wild to kind of pr- keep strangers out of the neighborhood. Yeah. Ooh. So Turkey, Not you're kind note. of you're kind of heads up with that. You know, like you're you're way ahead of us. Uh, but Turkey for me was kind of a, a melting pot. You know, uh, the driver that I got in with was. Uh, uh, kind of a conservative man. He had a beard and you can tell he's more on the conservative end. And he spoke Arabic to my delight because he was in Gizintab or from Gizintab, which is a few uh, steps away from the border with, with Syria. So he was able to explain a lot of things to me very easily. And it was a treat for me to kind of understand and communicate a lot more with him. On my way back, though, when I stopped in Istanbul again, the drivers that I was stuck with, did not speak any Arabic or English, so we had nothing to say to each other. It was just a... And you got to contemplate and reflect on your first experience in Istanbul. I actually was super sick. 
Oh, well. Because of the weather change. Uh, but it was a delight to be there. And before I jump in into Istanbul, I want to say something about going to Lebanon this time. I usually go to Lebanon with my Yemeni passport. And I usually go in relatively okay. I always try to get a visa ahead of ahead of time and I've never been stopped and I never had a kind of like a, a difficult time getting in. And I think now that I am American, hey, I've, yeah, well, hey, hey. I, thought, I thought it was going to solve a lot of my problems. So let me just give our audience a little bit of context here. So as a person who only carried the Yemeni passport, I can't travel anywhere in essence unless I have a visa. Yes. And the hardest place to get into would be the U.S. because it's one of the countries that Donald Trump banned from entering You're the country. You're on that list. We are definitely. And what does it say on your passport? Is it like a republic? Is it like a popular? Yeah, it's the Republic of Yemen. Do you even say like democracy on it or not? Like the democratic no, just republic. republic popular? Just no, republic. We, we don't try too hard. Okay. We're just, we're a republic. All right. But you know, in a sense, we are the most democratic country in the Arabian Peninsula. We are not a monarchy you know kudos and uh yeah but the problem is we don't get in because we have al-qaeda and the arabian peninsula like kind of situated there and so we there's just this assumption that you know if you're a yemeni or a terrorist that's how we're treated abroad which is really awful because a lot of us are not terrorists but you know how you can turn someone into being a terrorist by telling them that they're terrorists and by not allowing them to do anything and treating them like inferior but anyways uh for a long time i had a hard time getting around and about with my Yemeni passport. Mm-hmm. And a lot of Yemenis don't even get the opportunity to get out because besides applying for a visa, they have to prove that they have money and they have to do all these things to like just prove that they're going to return to their home. A lot of countries treat us like second class citizens and like we're not welcome, you know, we're a problem. And so I got my American passport and I thought, okay, well, phew, here goes like all my worries and my problems. I'm now American and now I have rights, you know? Um, and so the problem is my passport says born in Yemen. You have a weird question, like how, like all these years you had to deal with, you know, the stigma of having a passport from Yemen, which I relate to with my little green Algerian passport, but coming back with the American passport didn't, wasn't there even within you before you got to whatever you're going to share with us, wasn't there like a little conflict within you? You're coming back like. Well, was I never wanted the dissociation, or were you like, yes? I was always here one I of those people. With my new passport. Well, the the funny thing is, is I was so ideal when I was younger that I never wanted to change my nationality. Yes, that's kind of what I and was alluding to. I did not go ahead and apply for the American passport till I felt like I had no other choice. Like I applied once my country was in war, and then my own government was restraining my own movement. Uh, and not allowing me to get my passport renewed and everything. And that's when I was like, wow, I could, in essence, end up being a person without a passport. Because a lot of these countries in the Middle East, they could, in essence, take your nationality away from you. And on the subject of Turkey, there was a Turkish basketball player who actually spoke out against Erdogan, and now he's considered a terrorist, and they did withdraw his citizenship from him. So in, in a sense, those countries can treat you that way. And so I did not apply for the American passport till I felt that... I'm no longer safe being Yemeni and I'm no longer able to be protected by my own government. Um, And so I've also spent like about 12 years here. And I mean, every time I went back to Yemen, I was treated as this like non-Yemeni entity because I was too American for them, you know? And so it just, it just felt about right. It's a, it's the right time to embrace this. I needed it. So I get the passport Every single time I come back to America, I get randomly selected for search because my passport says born in Yemen. Yeah, I have to warn people who travel with me. 
that, that you get we're stopped. Gonna, no, that we're going to be like randomly checked. And it never fails. Well, for those who never get randomly checked, I, I have a tip for you. Every time you get your passport uh, ticket, if it if says SSS <laughs> in the bottom, you're randomly selected for security. You're going to get stopped. That's happening. So it happens every time I come back to America. And I know it's strictly because I'm of a specific age from the country of Yemen. And I have no problem with that because like ultimately this is better than nothing, right? Like I could not be traveling at all, you know? So I'm like, okay, fine. I'll, I'll, I'll deal with this. And now for the first time going to the Middle East with an American passport. Now my Yemeni passport had expired and lapsed over at my only nationality at the moment that I like carry with me is American. So I go into Beirut and here's my American passport and for the first time, I get the reverse treatment of, oh, you're Arab, but you're American. And the, the first burn. question that I was asked, uh, do you have an Arab identity on you? And I said, no. That is so multi-level. Yeah, so How I was like, no. And he goes, why not? And I go like, well, it expired, <laughs> you know? I was born in it, but it expired. You know, usually when you have long flights, it's hard to kind of answer those questions because they throw it at you and you're like, I didn't really think of this question coming and what should you need any other identification than the one you present well i kind of i kind of understand well when you think of lebanon in general though a lot of the lebanese people have dual citizenships right so a lot of them do come and go with multiple passports but they always hold on to their arab one yeah but it's not a requirement and you're not from lebanon no whatever you present if it's valid paper they shouldn't be asking for more that's just double standard i don't know what you're trying to do it is but you were getting the other side it is double standard, and it's because being Yemeni in this time, in this, in this lifetime, is suspect. You know, like, I go to Lebanon, they're like, wait a minute, there's Hezbollah around, do you have another passport? Can you sneak out and do something that's inappropriate? And I get that concern, but they never ask it to you directly, which I would appreciate a lot more. But then, again, like, why are you just immediately suspect because you're from a specific place? It's almost like you're not human. And, and you're immediately, a, a, you know, a criminal because you're from there. So I had a hard time at the passport coming, like, you know, at the passport checker. I don't know what they call it uh, when you come in, because for once I was like, OK, I'm suspect because also when you go to the Middle East and you have an American passport, you could be a spy. And so a lot of times people want to know why you're going there. You know, what are you exactly coming to do? And most Arab countries have like really good intelligence on people coming in. And so I, I kind of was stuck in this place where I was like, okay, now I'm, I'm not American fully because my passport will always say that I was born in Yemen and I will always be suspect in America. And now I'm American to Arabs, which again makes me suspect. And I felt like I had a leg in on both continents. Yeah, where's your allegiance? Exactly. Where does it lie? Like you can't be Liability. a combination of both, like a unique combination of both because I'm definitely both. I'm definitely 100% both. At what, like, it's not going to be like half of me is American and half of me is Yemeni. It's like, no, I'm an odd mixture of was, both. Was like it a man or a woman who asked you for your... A man. Uh, yeah, it actually exactly. ended you up with flirting. Exactly. Was, don't you think it was just trying to prolong no, the moment? No, definitely not. I think they keep tabs on who comes in and who doesn't come in. And it ended up with, oh, you're, you're from Yemen. Yes. And they're like, oh, you know, all Arabs in Lebanon come from Yemen. It's like, oh, great. Okay. It's like that typical thing that you get where... Uh, a lot of Arabs I meet always tell me that their origin is from Yemen. I think you get the whole, uh, you know, when somebody's from the United States, but they don't look like they're Anglo-Saxon. And they're like, but where are you really from? Oh, I got that on the <laughs> plane. Like the person that I sat next to on the plane asked but at me. at the customs where it's really none of their business and they should know better. Well, 
I just it was kind but of interesting because sometimes. I was so relieved to get the American passport to think that I will be finally treated like a human, you know, with rights. And, you know, when I travel, it doesn't mean that I'm there to commit crimes. I'm just traveling for work or for pleasure or just the same way that anybody else in the world would travel. And here I am with an American passport with all these rights, yet not really because my skin color and my place of birth does not signal that I am white. If I was born in the UK, in Denmark, in Sweden, I will not be having these issues. Yeah, being brown is really strong at customs. Like I used to have a diplomatic passport issued by Spain and the French still laughed at me at customs. They were like, an Algerian diplomatic passport? Ha ha ha. We haven't seen one in so long. Come with us. And I had to, yeah. And I couldn't even call my father. I couldn't call anyone. I didn't know what was going to happen. I was questioned for two hours. It's a diplomatic passport. I'm supposed to be exempt of all that. Yeah, you're like, come in. Yes. So, yeah. I mean, we live in a world where, you know, definitely you have the banned countries and Yemen is one of them. And to just like highlight what kind of world we live in. To me, Yemen is kind of like a bursting tuna can where it's full of people. So it's almost like 29 million people who cannot leave legally anywhere. The only two countries that were allowing Yemen in was like they were Jordan and Egypt, where you go in and you get the visa upon entry. But once the war started, they imposed a visa requirement, which meant that, you know, you have a refugee crisis when it comes to Syria because Syrians are flooding in other countries. You don't have one when it comes to Yemen because Yemenis are trapped. They are in a tuna can. They can't go anywhere. You are. You're actually my first Yemeni. I've never met. And I've met people from all over the world, like most obscure location everywhere in the Middle East. I've someone has been at school with me but you are the first person from Yemen that I meet well there's a lot of us and I've been finding a lot of cool people out there it's just I think we're silenced and a lot of us take because we feel inferior in a way we just like accept all these weird restrictions upon us and we don't complain we don't revolt the way that you expect us to and then the media doesn't really give a damn about it so that was kind of an interesting experience of being American and Arab at the same time. But the rest of the trip was tremendous fun. It was a lot of fun. Like this had nothing to do with being in the Middle East. It's just kind of a new realization about my new identity. Like how you am I? You thought you were out. Yeah, I thought I was out. I thought but I was going to be perceived in, in a new way. Through the other door. No, it was, I think I figured out that for the rest of my life, I'll always be there. Like there's no escaping this. You know, so ready to deal with us. (laughs) No escape in this. So that was that was like part of my first trip. Um, And then other than that, when I was in Turkey, I had a blast there because I met a transgendered person. And um, it was it was a fun story that I had to kind of deal with. But right now, should we take a break? Yeah. Tell us about it after the break. Okay, sounds good. This is District Durkas.
Hi everyone, welcome back. You're listening to District Durkas. We have new beats and tunes on the show. We were talking about identity just right before the break. I am Saman, I'm a Durka from Yemen and a Durka from Algeria, that's Lilia. Aloha everyone. We live in the District of Columbia and we get together here at Full Service Radio at the Lion Hotel every Thursday at 2 p.m. to decipher the Middle Eastern experience in the capital of the United States. Our topics include feminism, sexism, terrorism, absolutism, atheism, monotheism, socialism, etc. And all the prisms and schisms in, in between. between. So, right before the break, we were talking about escaping our Durkanis that doesn't fully succeed by immersing yourself or presenting yourself as Western because yes. you'll always forever be a Durka. How do you call these doors? Revolving doors? Yes. yes. That's the one. Mm-hmm. So... That was one realization that I got from the trip. And another one, I mean, the trip to Istanbul and Beirut was definitely about identities for me and intersectional identities. How do I relate to others in Istanbul and Beirut? How are we the same and how are we different? And a lot of times I try to think of how are we alike more than we are different. And when I was there, I kind of had an experience that I don't think I've had ever before. And it was very unique for me because I learned a lot from it. Uh, when I was in Istanbul, I was staying at a dear friend's house who was extremely generous. She brings in all kinds of journalists and workers and activists into her home. And we had dinner. And while we were having dinner, I was sitting outside, completely fully allergic to cats, sniffling everywhere. And this random cat in Istanbul just jumped on my lap. And while this was happening, there was a Syrian little girl who would sell tissues Uh, to people in Turkey and she came up to my friend and started speaking to her in Arabic she ha- she knows her she's met her several times before and she goes like hey um, auntie like uh, do you want to buy tissues from me today and while this was happening I asked my friend to take a photo of me with the cat and this little Syrian kid just immediately hugged me stuck her head next to me and took the photo with us and just started talking to me like we'd been best friends forever and this kid is like under the age of 10 she must have been like eight max and she was just so fluent and just clear and just so charming like I, I've never met a child just so very comfortable being with others like that and so as we're talking with each other we were sitting with someone who was transgendered who identifies as they and so the little kid came over and she goes like hey can I ask you a question um, and she goes like what this person in front of you, are they a girl or a guy? The little girl asks. Yes. Okay. She's like, Sabi binit, you know? She's like, are you a girl or a guy? And I didn't answer, but I asked they, then the transgender person identifies as they. Do you remember uh, their name? Um, I don't want to mention their name for their privacy. All right. But I, I, I know that their preference is to be called they. I have a question. Was it uh, a typically masculine uh, name or a typically feminine name? Neither. It, neither? Yeah. Oh, and uh, what was really interesting so too that was amazing is uh, they really work on their appearance being both feminine and masculine so that actually nobody would know. Was it made up or did it have like a... It was very authentic actually. It was very authentic. Yes. So was it a noun? It was uh, a noun for sure. Okay. Arabic But it noun. Was, Yes, so the, the person is of Arabic descent, uh, but partially Western as well. And I think that's kind of the saving grace that allowed for them to express their identity fully. Okay. But what was nice is that that person was in, in Istanbul and was comfortable enough to express themselves as who they are, you know? And so the question was, how do I tell this kid 
you know, what gender would you like to identify with? And they responded to her directly and they said, la, which means no. And then the girl kept on asking, sabi or labinet, like boy or girl. And then they kept on saying no. And, and the girl just got very confused and kept on saying, well, if it was a girl, she would have long hair. And if it was a boy, they would have facial hair and like all these things of how she understands gender to be. She would describe how she identifies a man from a woman. And she was just utterly confused. And she wasn't judgmental in any way. She was just genuinely asking to know. And I thought it was just the most beautiful way for her to realize that not everyone is a man or woman. And it was just like super heartwarming that nobody took offense. Nobody was like, it was just a learning experience for everyone. I definitely learned a lot uh, by just being there and by seeing how other people approach it, you know, kind of unfiltered, uncensored way of taking it in. And the fact that I was on like, relatively, like I was on a, on a, in a Muslim country while this was happening. It was kind of amazing. Uh, so for me, that was that was a real trait. Um, other than that, I, I can't say enough about Istanbul. It stole my heart. The amount of amazing uh, crafts that they sell, the calligraphy that's everywhere, the the souks and the markets and the jewelry. It's just it's mind blowing. I mean, you've been there. Yeah. I, so I, I don't know if you want to go back, but Absolutely. I'm itching to go back yes. like so, so, so badly. Um, but that, that trip got me thinking and that experience got me thinking about identity in general. And then it got me thinking about intersectional identity and how do we define ourselves. And it brings me to Amin Malouf that yeah, you're I was very... Yeah, I say you were introduced to... Uh, well, I've heard about him so many times. I just, he wasn't but once you go to Lebanon, lit. if you don't take that back with you... <laughs> I know, it's a problem. <laughs> I mean, he was quoted so many times and I mean... I mean, Malouf was kind of a big... Yes, he was. Big thinker for you. Yes, my mom introduced him as a, a novel of writer, so I read him, you know, just as in, his, in that capacity. And then later on in college, he was definitely part of the syllabus. So, so I mean, Malouf is Lebanese-French, who wrote in French. Yeah, his first book was very uh, fundamental because it's called The Crusades mm-hmm. Through Arab Eyes, which is a work that really hasn't done bef- been done before. You always hear The Crusades, and I always hear the you know one side of it and I didn't even know it was it could be possible to have that done to collect so much history and well if you go to it. Lebanon Tripoli Tarablus uh, if you visit that area which I did it's beautiful there are the historical artifacts of what's left over of the crusades so it is a living thing in Lebanon it's part of their history on the ground so it's very perfectly fitting that he would write about it especially in the French language, yeah, which I think but is... but that we would have the means, that was Like, what a beautiful cocktail, huh? hmm So while I was reading his book, he kind of would say in, in the second chapter that he lists all the identities that he relates to. And so I stopped for a second, and I thought I'd do the same. And he suggests in a way that your first identity that solidifies and that marks you as a person is the identity that becomes marginalized. That's the first one that you realize because you, you take it from a, you know, you suddenly feel like you're, you're not belonging and that identity starts to crystallize as your mind. Yeah, that's hard to wipe off. Like belonging is like, yeah, same waters, this feels warm, this is good. Yeah. Now belonging is a bit more. So definitely, I was like looking at this. Liminal space. And so as a person who grew up in Yemen, 
like I was mainstream everything like a Zamity girl in Yemen. Da, da, da. I had no reasons to really stand out. And I kept on thinking of what's this little micro identity that I have that made me feel like a minority or that I didn't fit in. And so the first one, so the one that came to my mind wasn't discussed in the book at all. Um, and so before I jump into mine, I kind of want to ask you if you were able to ever think of your micro identity that made you feel like you don't fit in. You mean like a uh, beginning of my life, early stages? Yeah, like or? your first, the first, you know, as a child, what is the one that, you know, was kind of uh, took shape in your mind that you started being aware of because of not fitting in, because of not being able to be like everyone else? Does it make sense that the not fitting in makes you fit in everywhere? <laughs> well, explain more. Well, I feel like whatever is, um, whatever experiences that I've had that made me feel like I was part of a minority or didn't fit in, actually, I, but I've never felt, I never internalized it as being a minority. It was just, it just meant I was part of something different. They didn't get it. They were, how to say that? Like I was, a, I had so many reasons to be a minority. I was the only Algerian girl in my French school when I was four in kindergarten Um, I was a woman, I was Muslim, but none of these things stigmatized me in the early stages. I, I saw it more like there's something that I know that you don't know, and that's okay. So what's interesting here is that right now I'm listening to you and you're the exact opposite of me in the sense that you were the exception to the norm where you grew up, and I was the norm norm where I grew up till something happened and made me realize that I'm not the norm norm yeah and it's I mean so should your marker be the identity that fit in with everybody else not really is it's, that the surprising identity more, no the surprising identity is for instance like when I was in kindergarten I was the only Algerian for some reason I don't know if you remember from early episodes where I'm talking about this Moroccan girl who fit in completely but I didn't yes nobody played with me like every day no one nobody wanted to hold my hand because I was brown it was It was brutal and it was in your face. There was not a day that, that people wanted to play with me. Actually, the one time that people wanted to play with me was to try and strangle me. And then the teachers blamed it on me and said that I was... You didn't fight back? I would totally kick the ass I of every kid there. Not only, not only did I fight back, but I didn't... <sighs> I imposed terms. For instance, I knew how to read and they didn't. So to me, they were like, okay, well fine, you still don't know something. Also, I was from Algeria, and to me, Algeria was utopia. In general, I felt like I was from utopia, so I always felt like whatever is it, whatever it is that they're angry at reflects more of where they're from, not where I'm from. So, I mean, little things like I didn't want to take a nap. They all took naps and pissed on themselves and smelled of it oh, by the time I was done. Oh, come on, you're a kid. That's cute. They take naps. Well, Kids I didn't taking naps are the sweetest thing ever. They well, like I didn't resting. take a nap because I had other things to do. So they afforded me that right. You sound so, like a grown-up kid. So every day we would take walks while they would be sleeping. And so whatever happened, I always, I always had my walk you know, by the trees and it was fine. So you're, did you have an identifier? Is there an identity? My identifier is, I guess, like the sense of individual, first of all, sovereignty. You will not tell me what I am because you don't understand it. And second of all... Um, <sighs> it was empowering for you to be different it was not disempowering okay it it just created a space for expansion instead of feeling like I'm being cornered so and maybe that has to do with like the geographical location of Algeria I mean it's in Africa it's in it's Mediterranean it's 
like Europe is a narrow way. It's part of so many things. And so people always want you to take a side. And it's like, well, I don't have to. Cool. So mine, mine was like nothing like that. I was, oh, it was an Excuse identity. Me to Not take a side as in like, I don't take a stand for what I believe in or whatever. Just, I don't have to exclude choose. someone yeah, you or don't be excluded. And that's the fun thing about identity. It's so fluid and it's beautiful. You don't, I think that's the thing about identity. As I get older, it's a, it's a great cocktail of things. You know, it doesn't have to be one, one certain thing, but I definitely had an identity that I didn't know how to deal with as a kid. I had no idea how to embrace. Yeah. And the older I got, the more I realized that, you know, like your driver's license, your um, things like that are called identification cards. So on your card, you would fill out all these things about you and that's how you become identified. And in Arabic, it's also the same thing. They actually use the, uh, the term identity for a card. It's hawiyah. And in the Middle East, they even list your ethnic background in some places or your religious background, which even, you know, breaks it down further. So you are marked by these things. And I think one of the identities that you don't typically think of adding on an identification card is the first marker for me. And that's um, being the child of someone who was mentally ill. Uh, my father was uh, a PhD professor who ended up being the dean of Sana'a University. I mean, to me, as his daughter, I, I saw how brilliant he was because he was able to teach so many people in the field of journalism and was able to achieve so much but very few people who knew him knew that he struggled personally with a mental illness and I think that as a kid I didn't know how to understand it and it's mostly because it's not something that's talked about in society it's not something that the adults around him would talk about to him it's not something that he even understood fully and so it was something that I didn't realize made me different till, you know, my parents were divorced and sometimes my father would come visit me in school and I realized that the kids in school thought that was weird and that my relationship with him was strange and it was the first time that I was like, wait a minute. The thing that makes me feel different is not that my parents are divorced, is that my, my father is coming across as different to them. And I mean, I wish that was an identity that you know, it's, it's not tied to an economic status. It's not tied to an ethnic one. It crosses, you know, every culture and every border and every line. Yet it's something that nobody talks about as an identity. I definitely feel that I relate to anyone, regardless of social class or, uh, you know, ethnic background or religious background. Anybody who might have a mental illness in their family, I feel like I relate to that person's experience. And so it's like a unifying identity, but at the same time, it's an identity that's not regarded as an identity per se in the strictest form. So yeah, if it's something that's more debated, you mean that on a personal level, like your personal experience, like with the gaze of the others, but also your relationship. It's demonized. The, yeah. Yeah. Right. Nobody talks about mental illness because they think that people who are mentally ill are criminals, right? If you look at the Florida attacks that happened, the person who shot kids at school, they, you know, to this day, the NRA keeps talking about putting restrictions on the mentally ill from having weapons, which totally makes sense. But a lot of the people who commit these crimes are not mentally ill, right? They're extremists. They are. And I'll flip that. And I think a lot of extremists who actually are mentally ill, I'll are called automatically terrorists if they have an Arab or Muslim background. They yes. don't even get 
that treatment they're not afforded mental illness well that's the thing if you're white then you're mentally ill if you're not white then you're a terrorist you're a crazy savage it must be your religion it must be your color it must be where you're from so there is a double standard and i think the victim in all of this is mental illness that we're not we're further like we're further on not understanding it and despite like i mean there's an increasing awareness on mental illness and trying to unvilify it in but you some can, communities in some yes i mean there's there's a token awareness month i think it's in may i mean at least a, as, a, as far as u.s is concerned yeah but is it is there a day for the mentally ill that's what i'm saying it's a token month but yeah. it's 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 an increasing awareness it's not a complete one but you can still see even in in u.s popular movies how Sometimes demonic manifestations, there's a brillard line between somebody who may be schizophrenic and possessed. They always love to play that scene. So on that note, there's a lot of shows that actually try to portray mentally ill people as criminals. Like SVU, a lot of times would have a killer who is schizophrenic and then they get on their medication and then they're suddenly okay, you know? And it's like, yes, there's a layer of that. But I think from my personal experience and from a lot of reading and research, the mentally ill are not necessarily violent towards others they tend to be more violent towards themselves and that's something that people don't look into for example suicide rates are highly linked to the mentally ill because they would rather hurt themselves than others and that's something that nobody takes into consideration like most times the person who's mentally ill is the person who's suffering most um, and people are always scared of them when in fact they need compassion and understanding um, and so in that regard I want to point out that also mental illness and sometimes is linked to genius. And that's something that I kind of can see and understand a lot more because I feel like they're far more complex and they feel things on a level that is a bit more uh, nuanced than the way that we feel things. And definitely for those who struggle with chemical imbalances, their perception is altered because of these imbalances. And so in a sense, their entire experience is entirely different than us. We can be in the same room, but they're living a different reality. And a lot of them tend to be artists, writers. Um, and, and if they find an outlet, it tends to be beautiful. Like one of the most brilliant artists I've seen is schizophrenic. And he's in the UK and he started by drawing cats. And he replicated these cats till they became a kaleidoscopic pattern of things. And I don't think, you know, had he been a normal person, I don't think he would have been able to translate it to that beauty. So ultimately, I just think that the hardest identity that I think, I mean, Maluf's book that was called Al Hawiyat Al Qatila, which means killer identities, which was what in, in French? Les identités meurtrières. Aha, uh -huh, that's the, the original book written in French. I think that one of the things that Maluf failed to mention was that identity. I don't think he failed. I don't think he's a doctor. So the scope of the book was clearly socio political. So he was addressing. Well, yeah, that's, the different that's, ethnicities, because he's trying to make sense of what's going on politically in the Middle East and in the world in general. So I think his attempt, he was studying these currents. He, absolutely. He, he cannot like... But that's the thing. So I'm advocating that... I'm sure there are books written by neuroscientists, people who are in that field about... Yeah, but what I'm advocating is that we don't look at mental health as just a health thing. It is a socio-political status as well. And so in a sense, when we talk about books that include ethnicities and There's other certainly things, politics involved in how you deal with it exactly. or how people are dealt with. So I would like it to be looked at in a different way. Like I would like it to be looked at as one of those things that needs to be there. And you know what? As a matter of fact, a lot of the people I talk to 
tend to have a family relative who's also struggling with something similar. They just never mention it. They never come out with them being like, you know what? You know, I can totally see what you're talking about because my uncle this or my aunt this or my grandfather or my grandmother. But this comes out when I come out and be like, you know what? When I was a kid, so and so happened and it's been difficult. But my father was extremely strong and he he just like like he he managed to go through all the turbulence of it and still come out on top. Because despite of his illness, he was able to speak three languages. Despite of his illness, he got his PhD. Despite of his illness, he was a dean at a university. He managed to influence an entire generation of students. And so a lot of people I know who don't even suffer from illnesses don't, don't even get that. They don't do that. I think when it comes to biological identity, whether it's mental illness or just like illness, uh, It's, it's not a learned, it's not acquired, it's not like a religion. But we don't so even the, know. So we don't even know that. Yes, but because it feels so inerrant, I think that's why there's maybe a problem in, in translating it. Well, some people you know it's not, would it, be okay all their lives and then one day... Yeah, it's tricky. It but it's, yeah, but it's, it's, you can't, you, it's not just biological. Like Some people would argue that it's environmental, like put under enough stress things can be triggered out of you. It's a common human experience that's disregarded But I think we're always blindsided by the biological. Like when it's so p a part of you, it's hard to have that sight. Sure, but isn't that it's the same... It's hard to dissociate yourself from something that is happening in your veins. But so. isn't that the same as identifying as either male or female if we are going to go down to biology? Of course, of course. But that's still part of your identification and I, but card. But that's still a struggle, a strug an identity that struggles to express itself. We're still in the works. We're still in the process. Well, and we're still trying to talk more about it. It's I definitely not, not, would like to talk yet. more about it. Yes. And sure. you should join my mother who actually has an association in Algeria to bring, you know, more awareness, more awareness and that. help. And I mean, the Middle East still definitely can't and, talk and, about that. Honestly, so. we don't talk about it honestly at all. Um, so I But love that your mom is doing that. <laughs> <laughs> there is a conversation indeed. So actually, we are about to run out of time. But before we run out of time, we have one last segment for our audiences. We and have. it's Orientalism Expressed. There we go. All the ways. You twisted, manipulative psychopath. How could you? You're going to have to be a tad more specific. It's been a busy few days. My party. Right. I heard about your little rebound reception. Good for you. Moving on. So you're just going to pretend like you have nothing to do with the fact that no one showed up. That you didn't put a dating fatwa on me. We're over, Chuck. Unclench. To set the record straight, I didn't put a fatwa on you. The reason no one showed up today is because no one could ever measure up to what we had. I'm obviously so, a dating fatwa? Yeah, what's a fatwa, Sama? I heard they uh, do that where you're from. Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> do they not do that where you're from? Uh, well, it's one of those words that kind of became New York cool to use. I don't know if you, if you read that Brooklyn has its own speak where they try to incorporate things from around the world and make it part of their lingo. I didn't know that fatwa was one of them, but there were several articles about how hipsters in Brooklyn These would say These are upper-siders. Yeah, I mean, but they were, they were cool, you know. So that was cool to say fatwa. He issued a what? A dating fatwa on her? Yes, he totally like... So yeah, fatwa, her party. <laughs> fatwa means a religious... Uh, like issuance or a decree of some sort that's given from a, a religious authority and imam. So in a sense, I think the way that she's using it is similar to the term ban or yeah. a dating restriction. Um, 
fatwas are not necessarily restrictive. They're actually, there could be fatwas that are liberating, yeah. meaning that, oh, I didn't know if I can do so-and-so, you know, can I take off my scarf, for example, or my hijab? Somebody would be like, oh, actually, there was a fatwa saying that women, in fact, don't have to wear it or women, in fact, should wear it. So a restrictive fatwa would impose the hijab, in a sense, if you feel that the hijab is restrictive. And on the other hand, a non-restrictive fatwa would be like, you can take off the hijab, but a fatwa is a decree. Yeah, but it's a decree. So the decree dictates. It's it's an arbitrary rule. Like by my decree, by my yes uh, subjective yes, this will be banned. Yes, but I so don't think that upper siders of the word. I actually thought it was hilarious. Uh, I started using it after that. I was like, what an intrepid way of using the word fatwa. Yeah, I mean, and making fun of all the ways. I mean, in the in in the recent years with the mainstreaming of terrorism and, and them having access to social media and declaring a fatwa on this and a fatwa on that, it was bound to make its way to... Fatwa is one of the hot terms, kind of like jihad. Yes. Or like a, a But I mean, I fatwa. suffered it as an Algerian. Every day there was a new fatwa. It was... I mean, in Ara- almost, it's an Arabic term that's yeah, but taken it became to hip only mean- After the 90s, like, I never heard about fatwa. I don't like, know. It's, my it's part of the fatwa, Arabic language, gram- though. Like but, it's but the idea of a fatwa, that's very new. That's very political Islam of 90s, 2000s, these new groups, and they declare fatwa on this and fatwa on that. They don't really have a state. That's the political use, use of it. But fatwa's definitely existed for many, many years. Many, many years. I don't think it became used as yeah, commonly just like jihad, as it is today. But I mean, now it's been taken over by these groups who use it because they don't have a, they don't have a proper, they don't, they're not legitimate. So they have to call out to these fatwas. So yeah. They're not rules, they're not laws, they're not in the constitution. They're just arbitrary. To and those who didn't recognize the Blair, voices. It's Gossip Girl. Gossip Girl. I, I used to be a fan. I, so. I can tell. <laughs> <laughs> I can tell. So Lilia chose this. You know what's funny? The character who, you know, is speaking in this voice and being like Chuck all this he got He got accused of um, raping a girl. Wow. Yeah, he was part of those exposed in the Me Too movement. And so on that note, I actually want to end there by saying that he was one of those who got exposed in the Me Too movement because our next episode is going to be on Women's Day. And yeah, I th- thank you for crashing the segment I picked. No, I, th- I think it's it's dude, I didn't, dude, the guy, <laughs> you know, we don't have control of I what know. this guy does. But I am happy that those who kind of crossed lines are being exposed for their behavior, which, by the way, season one, he does get rapey. He was rapey on all the first. Along. Yes, he he's was a weird character. So he's a weird character. And huh. his dynamic with Blair was even weirder. Like, I, I don't understand. I don't know. Gossip Girl was she can take weird. it She's a strong it was woman. a weird show so alright well thank you guys for tuning in I hope you enjoyed this episode this is District Durkas come back to surf with us on full service radio thanks for listening to this program on full service radio broadcasting and recording from the Line Hotel in Adams Morgan Washington D.C. Full Service Radio programming can be accessed live and archived on fullserviceradio.org. Our talk programming is available on most podcast apps like iTunes and Stitcher, and our DJ sets are available on mixcloud.com slash fullserviceradio. Full Service Radio features over 30 weekly shows and over 50 local hosts covering every topic imaginable. If you want to be a guest or get involved, email us at info at fullserviceradio.org. 
follow us on Twitter at Full Service RDO, on Instagram and Facebook at Full Service Radio. Thanks for listening. <laughs>